This week, the New York Public Library podcast welcomes novelist Richard Ford, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sports Writer, Independence Day, and The Lay of the Land. Ford comes to NYPL to talk about his latest book, Let Me Be Frank With You, which finds its protagonist struggling to make sense of his past in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thanks. Thanks for uh, braving the new cold, which we all hoped and thought would never come. And it's here. Here it is. Here it is. For Maine, though, we just laugh at a cold like this. Well, you're not, you know, in Maine, you must wear many more layers in your way. Many more layers. Well, you know what they always say. What weather is just an issue of clothing. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, start at the beginning of the beginning because I read that you were slightly dyslexic. I am. And, um, I mean, maybe it interests me, too, because I'm dyslexic. Or was as a child. I mean, I think it's you always all the rage are. Now. Yeah, it is. There's nothing like pathologizing, right? <laughs> no. So I, um, I wanted to know when you started reading. Um, well, I got through high school. I went to high school in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, where uh, you could graduate in the middle of your class and never have read a book. <laughs> and so, really, I didn't read a book until I was about eighteen. Maybe and what was 19. the book? <laughs> Absalom, Absalom. Oh, that can change your life around. It, 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 it did. It, it did change my life. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I. It would be a longer story than anyone can endure. But um, I, I, teachers were always saying to me, "You need, you know, how teachers do. They, you need to apply yourself. You need to apply yourself." We've, we've all been told that. So when I got to be about eighteen, I thought, if I don't start applying myself, I'm going to be doomed. And in that sense, that fear of failure was really what it was that made me read. It, it wasn't anything high-minded. It was just I thought that if I don't read a book... And, and was, how, well, Absalom, Absalom. Somebody gave it to me. I, I was in university and... Um, That's the toughest. Well, it, it is probably, in Faulkner terms, the toughest. I'll, no, I know, I would say... Late in August. No, yeah. no. The, uh, the Sound of the Fury yeah. is probably the toughest because it starts with the Benji chapter and who what the, <laughs> <laughs> would never get published today. <laughs> But 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 that's pretty. It's close. It's, mm-hmm. it's also probably the the greatest uh, novel of the 20th century. Absolutely, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, much better than Ulysses. Um, and what about? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the home, it's the hometown <laughs> view anyway. <laughs> we could we could get in a really. <laughs> oh, I have. <laughs> Cumbersome discussion. So, um, and what about writing? I mean, when did you begin writing? You started, so it would have been in college, after college, when, yeah. It was, it was actually in college. I, I, I was a frat boy in college, and um, it, I, I could find a small, quiet interlude in the Sigma Chi house between about 12 and 1. And I was looking for something to do because I, was, I, was, I had a, a triple major. When really? I got busy, I really got busy because I felt like I had a lot to make up for. So what was your triple major? Um, literature, French, and history. And uh, I had a lot of courses. A so lot? I, so I, I, looked, I looked for one place in the schedule where I could basically, I thought, do nothing. And that was naturally the creative writing course. 
but but it, it turned out to be the one you know that I would carve out a late night hour for every day after all of my brothers were um, safely in bed. And were you you started writing short stories? Is that what you started? I just started writing? writing stuff. I guess they were stories. They 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 didn't really. But not poems. Not poems. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know how dear poems are to your heart. <laughs> Were you, when did you meet, I mean, I was reading about you and this idea of like dirty realism, um, which is like these terms are so I know, dirty silly. realism. Dirty realism is, a, is a, a term that Bill Buford, the wonderful Bill Buford, who was the sort of man who resurrected Grantham Magazine in Cambridge University, Gave to me and some of my pals, right? And Carver uh, and, and Toby Wolf and Ann Beatty, Ann Beatty and, and, right. and Jane Ann Phillips. And how did you meet them? Was it at Irvine that you met? Where, where no, did you meet Carver? I met Carver in 1977 in Dallas. Um, there was, you know, they used to, universities still had money for literary festivals, and and they brought me and Ray and. Ed Doctorow, who had been my teacher, and Phil Levine, your old friend, and um, um, a bunch of us down to do that thing. And Carver was there, and he was not long off of, off of the booze. And, and he was very shaky, and I don't mean literally shaky, but his, his grip on, on his life was very uncertain. And, and when he met me, it was kind of love at first sight between him and me, because I wasn't a drunk, and I owned a house. I was still married to my original wife, and I was solvent. And I think he looked at me and he thought, these are the kinds of friends I need to have. Did you fish? Hmm? He's a, he was a big fisherman. Well, he was, a, he he was a big fisherman as long as you could tie a piece of cheese on a <laughs> hook and drop it in the water. But he wasn't one of those fishermen like we were talking about earlier. Okay. okay. He wasn't casting a dry fly. We, he and I would go fishing in Montana, and he would always laugh. He would say, all right, I'm going to fish my way, which was a big piece of cheddar on a, <laughs> on, on a, on a big hook. And I would be there with my little delicate fly lines and all that kind of stuff. And of course, he would always catch more fish than I caught. Did you, um, I mean, they were, I mean, he was an incredible short story writer, obviously. He was, and, pretty, and a, you know, a dab-handed writing a poem, too, though I'm sure, I'm sure in, in the aesthetic climes of American poetry, he didn't matter much. But no, but he was a poet, yeah. He was yeah, a poet. Yeah, absolutely. I always used to tell him, you know, these poems that you're calling poems, they're just really the stuff you collect off the floor uh, after you finished a <laughs> short story. But his, his, his... What he identified as is as a poet. That's oh, what really? he, That's what he thought well, he, he was. He married a poet too, Tess Gallagher. And he did, yeah. and she and she saved his bacon too. Oh, really? uh, no matter what else you might think about Tess Gallagher, she saved Ray's life, uh, and and one should be forever grateful for that. Did you learn? I mean, did you share your work with these? I mean, this crowd of people. Where when you were did. writing the first two novels, was yeah. that this was the crowd that you would show your. Yeah. Drafts to and yeah. get notes from, and I mean, how did you influence each other? Was it? Well, he would say I didn't influence him at all, um, but I would say he influenced me in some ways. He at least influenced me to make me think I could write a short story, which I hadn't up to that point believed. To, and his, as you all know from his stories, they they seem effortless. Yeah, they, they're not very long. Uh, he could write them in a sitting. Sometimes the sitting would take all day, but he could write them in a sitting. And I just thought hanging around with those guys and having published two novels, which nobody read, 
that I needed to start doing something that was that was easier. When you, <laughs> when you, after you wrote the two novels, you then and you taught a bit. You then went to become a sports writer. I did because I because my my writing career, I think we can say, took a stumble about 1980 or 81. I'd published these two books and nobody had read them, and I thought, well, son, you need to go out and get a job, <laughs> because my wife had been supporting us at that point for. Oh, I don't know, 13 years. Wow. And yeah. I hadn't made any money. A uh, couple of, as you said, a couple of teaching jobs. But So I went to work for Inside Sports. And in fact, if Inside Sports hadn't, f- hadn't itself failed. Because I was wondering. That's what the question I was going to ask oh, you. Oh, I, I would have been Because ha- it, was, it was around for a year. It was around for a little longer, but maybe if. But their, their, their brief was, unlike Sports Illustrated, they would get otherwise reputable writers to write sports. And that included. Donald Hall, included uh, Robert Bly, included me, included all kinds of people who were norm- nominally sort of literary types. We would write sports because th- we were all sports enthusiasts. And in fact, if that hadn't, I shouldn't say in fact, because, but, but if that hadn't folded, I would have gone on doing that and never written another novel. Really? Oh, absolutely. You didn't miss fiction at all? Oh, Lord, no. I, I didn't miss it at all. <laughs> uh, it, 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 I'd had my shot. Right. You know, I'd published two novels, and they hadn't done made anybody happy. Uh, they got reviewed, they got published, they had you know what what books books endure. Um, and but I would have been happy doing that, and I think that the world would not be a worse place for my having uh, done that instead of writing novels for the next thirty years. Wow. Well, that's up for grabs, you know what I mean. Well, but I just you know, Jessica, <laughs> I don't like this notion, this sort of hierarchical notion that there are. Some jobs that are more important than others. We we all know that there are some jobs that are, you know, medical doctors who treat Ebola patients. They have a much more important job than mine, for instance. But for a novelist to decide that what he wants to do is be a sports writer, for instance, or some or a harmonica player or anything, there's no loss there. Right. There's well, no I mean, there there's a loss for the audience that may feel that they Maybe. would but have missed those novels because after the sports writing. Came the sports writer. Right. Well, I, it did fold, <laughs> and, and I went back down to Princeton where we were living, and, and um, I sort of looked around, and I thought, well, I, I've given up writing novels, and nobody will give me a job writing sports because Sports Illustrated wouldn't give me a job. So, so write about yeah. a sports writer. So I write about a sports writer, yeah. And so, but I had to kind of, in order to do that, I had to kind of retool the whole process of writing novels. I had to, there's a, Adam Gopnik, when Updike died, said something wonderful. He said, that, that, that Updike managed to get himself, the, over the course of his life, fully expressed. Huh. And, and what he meant by that was not that, n- not that writing novels is a, is a mode of self-expression, because it really isn't, but, it, it, but, but you, you, you do use up yourself sure. in, 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 in putting things on the page. And, and Adam thought that Updike managed to get all the important things that he knew and had accumulated and thought onto the page. And I had to devise a new strategy for getting myself fully expressed. Because young novelists often will write a book which only partakes of a third or two-thirds of what they know and can do. The real trick is to, is to write novels which are vessels that contain everything that you can do and figure out and imagine. And that's what, that's what I had at to do. At that moment. At that, at, at at that time where you're over writing. The, at least the over course, the course though, of, of writing it. two or three years right. it takes to write it, yeah. Um, so Frank Biscayne came to be and then I mean 
did you know when you were writing the sports writer that this was going to be a series of books? Yeah, did you feel that no. this that this was a character you wanted to live with and watch age and no 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 I was just a one book at a time kind of writer. Uh, I never thought, and I was by I was holding on by my little fingertips to that. So when I wrote the sports writer, uh, I never never dawned on me that I would ever take that voice and do anything else with it again. Until you started Independence. That's right. And then suddenly you found Frank again. Then well, it was always in my notebook. Yeah. I keep a notebook, and I'm always writing lines for people. And some of the lines I would put FB and circle it by the line, and that let me know that there was something still um, revenant, you know. About, uh, f- about, a- Frank. about Frank, yeah. When you ended the trilogy, or you were, they thought, I mean, you with the last book, um, Lay of the Land, and everyone thought that it was going to be... Richard and, thought. And then R- Richard woke up <laughs> and, and read, you know, and, and decided to write Let Me Be Frank with you, and it is structured in such a way that it began as a short story. I mean, because it's really four novellas it linked together. I know. I'm I coming back from going down on a kind of a calamity tourist jaunt down to the shore after Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I was started generating some lines in my head, which is how things work with me. And um, I, I, I thought, well, these are Frank Bascom lines, but I've already said I would not write another Frank Bascom novel because... There's a part of writing novels for me that I find to be very arduous. Generally, writing anything isn't very hard. Or otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it at, at age 70. And most writers, I'll tell you, most writers who tell you how hard they work, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> if really. But I thought, oh, shit. I said, I don't want to erect a big you know, novel with 200,000 words in it. I thought, can't I figure out a way to do this Frank Bascom story in a way that isn't quite so arduous? So I thought, yes, you can. You can write a novella. And so I thought I would write one novella. And then when I wrote one novella, I thought, you know, this is not only kind of pleasurable, <laughs> but, but this, is, this is kind of good. So do another one. And then I thought, well, if I can do two, I can do as many as I want to. In these novellas, I mean, we, you deal with the horrors of, I mean, of aging and death. Let's not say and, horrors. Okay. Uh, well, it's hilarious. I <laughs> yeah. mean, this book, because yeah, we the, were just talking about aging. that. I mean, you know, well, the hilarity of aging. But, I mean, I've always thought, not that this matters what I think, but it I... It does I, matter. <laughs> it matters to me right now. Um, I've always thought that if you tell a story about sort of the worst, you get in a car crash, and you tell a story and you give it humor, that suddenly it's it's palatable. It's 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 okay. You suddenly make that experience okay, and you make it okay for other people and yourself. I think that's right. And it lifts, it lifts the fragility of aging. It lifts it lifts some of these things that we know, but that's it gives right. and imbues them with a kind of humor and a kind of liveliness or a kind of in your frankness you you save yourself in some way i think that's right and um i I felt with this book that there was a way you're facing you're turning 70 right i mean you have congratulations (laughs) you look terrific (laughs) i always tell you right you know know when somebody tells you that you look terrific (laughs) that you're old (laughs) 
They wouldn't tell you. They wouldn't tell you that if you were forty. Um, you look terrific. Well, um, what can I say? <laughs> um, I think anyway. I know Jessica I, says she was a child. Should be said. Well, uh, nine. <laughs> um, we were trying to figure that out. Twelve. Um, I, I guess. I, I wondered if that was part of writing this book, that you're at this place in your life. I mean, it's just what you said about the vessels, that there's something that you're aware of that moment. You're aware of what's going on. This is something that's around you. Friends are passing away. Right. Um, dear ones are sick. That's right. You know, uh, right. people's wives, people's husbands are getting diseases that right. are incurable. Or well, people are, are also having a good time. Too. But people also are letting go of things, which Frank yeah. does, yes, which we'll talk right. about in a sec. But I, I just wondered, um, you know, if it's a kind of, uh, there's a lot of sadness, but at the same time, there's a way of sort of saying, hey, look, here's Frank. He's not only decommissioning friends, but he's changing the English language or the popular language that the media does. And he's dropping, he's just throwing away those words and purifying his speech. Because, hey, it's time. Well, um, you know, most novelists are looking for things to say. And um, you're in the book, you're in the middle of a book, and so you're basically every day trying to dream up something else to say. Maybe you have a scheme, maybe you have a plan, maybe you have a lot of notes, but that doesn't give you something to say. So when I dreamed up Frank decommissioning words out of his vocabulary, uh, I thought that was, I thought that was funny. It was hilarious, and then there was something I could say. And so then when I thought that he was decommissioning most of his friends, I thought that, well, that's something I could say. And, 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 so I, and then once I said it, I thought, well, that's fairly, that's fairly plausible. But I actually thought mostly that it was hilarious. But was the, it al- something the alternate that was title for this book was Hilarity, <laughs> and, I, and I think probably my publisher wishes that I had called it Hilarity today. Oh, because you got so much flack about it. Well, they never liked the title. Shit, you know, they don't... But that was also part of the hilarity. I thought, well... It's a joke. Yeah, I thought it was... But you have to read the book. That's the only thing. That's okay. But back to what you were saying, you know, about about things that can be sad, having a dimension which are not sad. There's a great line in one of Henry James's famous prefaces in which he says that there are no themes so human as those which, out of the complexities of life show the connection between bliss and bail, between the things that help and the things that hurt. Mm-hmm. So, and so when you think about the two faces of drama, one looking one way and one looking the other, one grimacing and the one. other one smiling yeah. or laughing, th- that's what that is. These things are inextricable. Absolutely. You know, they aren't. They aren't and, and you have to find the side that you can use. Well, that's what makes things human. Yeah. I mean, that was another question I wanted to ask you about metaphor, um, because, you know, I've I've read that you really, that you resist metaphor in your work. Well, I I resist not not verbal metaphors. I'm comfortable with verbal metaphors, but I resist the sort of one-to-one, what does your book mean? Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. I don't like that sense of metaphor. My book means what my book says. It, it is what it contains. You don't, need to, you don't need to sort of bounce from my book to some other conceptual construction because for me that just diverts the important reader's attention away from the particulars of the book. I mean, most novels, uh, their, moral, their moral mission is to say to the reader, 
pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. This is what you're getting. You're getting life, and this is all you're getting. And so, um, and so to be constantly being made to move away from the book to something else that it might refer to or mean, and that's de- that, that isn't pleasing. Well, it devalues it on some level. I think because I, I was wondering because I think you really are able to sort of anchor. Um, you're interested in anchoring the work in the world itself, not in sort of this uh, world of ideas, but in itself, that it doesn't have to be something else. It is the policeman. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is who it is. This is who he is. I mean, most most ideas that we deal with as ideas, as abstractions and conceptions, start somewhere in some literalness. They don't don't start necessarily up in the clouds. They, They start with some some empirical experience that someone has which is profound enough to cause you to attach other associations with it and little by little by little it enlarges. Right. But I think metaphor can take away from uh, the object, the person, whatever it is itself, often because you're... I mean, when you read something or when you... You want to interpret your own way and suddenly... You do that, yeah. I I I don't want you to, but you, you will. Right. You know, the, a, a successful book for me is one not only that I get you to read all the way through to the end, but 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 also is one in which there is no large discrepancy between what I want you to understand and what you understand. If you go away from my book, sort of on your own bat, and think to yourself, "Well, I'm you know I'm making this book mean what it means to me," and there's a great discrepancy between these two things, then I've failed. Right now, I understand. I'm, I'm really I'm really trying to. I'm trying to authorize your response. That's what it means to be an author. And also to have a, a voice as an author. Is that it it's your, no? It's, well, it's the way know. you're I'm, seeing Frank's world. That's, that's, uh, vo- vo- voice is such a tricky business. I, 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 we would have to have a 25-minute conversation in which we sort of listed our terms. I mean, I think voice is the music of the story's intelligence. That the voice of a novel, the voice of a story, is not the speaking voice of Frank Bascom, but it is something something actually a good bit more complex. It is it is how the novel sounds when it is doing its most important business on you. Mm-hmm. When it is mm-hmm. as novels do, as poems do, novels lean on us. Mm-hmm. They they are artifice. They are rhetorical. They are trying to affect us and 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 and, and change us. And that's what I. Hear what I understand when I use the word voice. This is going to be, I mean, it's, uh, we don't have that much time, but I wanted to ask you this question. I know that you write these three by five cards about writing and, you know, yeah, I do. and that you keep them. I do. I and then one of the quotes is writing is a concentrated form of thinking. Yeah, That's Delilah a, said yeah, that. Yeah, Delilah. And I, I guess out of that and listening to you talk about that and, and, and knowing that, I'm wondering you know, why you think people write? Well, um, Levis said, F.R. Levis said, literature is the supreme means by which we undergo a renewal of our sensuous and emotional life and learn a new awareness. So I think that there is a hunger for those things in the world, and it's a kind of honorable vocation to try to serve to that hunger. So we, so what I try to do, I, I try to write books that will cause you to undergo a renewal of your sensuous and emotional life and along the way provide some kind of new awareness. 
That's that's one way. I, that's one way of doing it. You could, you could. When I was a little boy and I read Absalom, Absalom, having not read any books before, I had been as a as a young adolescent through my adolescence, kind of living that life that adolescents lead, which is to say, is shit? Is this all there is? Christ, is this you know? Right, life, right. life is not really. People were telling me how great it was to live in Mississippi, and I was not experiencing it being very great. And but when I read Absalom, Absalom. I felt another uh, another beat to life provided, and it was the beat to life that literature provides, because literature is is about life and therefore affirming of life, and and and, and insofar as it's about life, it tells its reader, you know, life which you're living and maybe not enjoying or maybe not getting the most out of, actually can is important enough to sponsor this magnificent novel. Sure. So it's so it's 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 a it's kind of helical, sort of helical in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. What are you reading now that you've loved? You know, I, it's, 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 it's a hard. I am reading. It's a horrible admission for me because I am bored, rigid by the Civil War, but um, but I am reading C.S. Gwynn's biography of Stonewall Jackson. Oh, it's supposed to be. Oh, it's wonderful. It's, supposed to be wonderful. it's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And me, really, I am so reluctant and resistant to the Civil War because the Civil War was stupid and wasteful and wrong in every way and the South lost and should have lost. And and but and so I you know, when I was a little boy, when T V was new in Mississippi, which was about nineteen fifty five, they didn't have anything to put on T V. So they would have these old FARC historians with these big sand tables. <laughs> And they would be moving their armies around and moving, <laughs> moving their men around on these sand tables. And, and, we, and we would be sitting there in Jackson looking at it on TV. And, I, and, and that was my sense. No, don't do that. You know, don't, <laughs> don't, don't make that be of what we have to think about. So I resisted. Uh, you know, Shubby Foote said that if you don't understand the Civil War, uh, you don't understand America. I, I never believed that. I never believed it until Obama became president. And when Obama became president, and I saw all these crackers coming out of the woodwork, then I thought, boy, Shelby, Shelby knew something. He really knew something because what that, what so much of the resistance to Obama is about is is found there. it's racial, absolutely racial. What? Uh, and I, I maybe you've answered this with Absalon, Absalon, or maybe you don't go back. But I, uh, this is my last question, and I, I like to ask authors this: is Is there a classic that you go back to time and time again, and feels rich and inspiring, and that you draw from, that you find? I mean, whatever it may be, you know, a Henry James or a, well, I read James a lot. I read James's prefaces a mm. lot. The art of the novel, Pro- but probably in just in purely fictional terms. I read the Tejans novels about Ford Maddox Ford. Oh, yeah. I, I can re-enter those, those four books almost any place at all and feel exactly what Levis said literature is supposed to provide us, sensuously and emotionally renewed and a new awareness uh, made available. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, thank thank you, you so you. much. So... Um, I am going to give this microphone to this lovely lady up here, and we'll take three or four questions from the audience, and I will point at you, and you can ask your question. Here. Yeah. You want to raise your hand if you have a question? Here's a gentleman. 
Okay, so I'll give you a very... I feel like socks play a role in all of this. Sorry, I, I, I didn't hear, sorry. It seems like socks play a role in all of this, and I just wondered if... Well, you know, it's uh, for socks. Oh, this gentleman said it seems like socks play a role in this. Well, when you, get to be, when you get to be 70 years old, this is what you have instead of a personality. I can't say I really like socks, can I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, those aren't those aren't good socks, but I mean. Uh, <laughs> you'll get there. Yes, ma'am. And thank you. I um, absolutely loved Independence Day. Thank I, you very I just much. thought it was just just absolutely wonderful. Would you ever reconsider and write another Bascom novel? Or? Well, having said I wouldn't and then did, I guess I can't go back and say no again. You know, a funny thing, um, I guess I'd have to say yes, but, but there are some constraints upon my doing that, not the least of which is my age. But um, I, was in a, I was in a car with a guy the other day in Washington who's a lobbyist. And he had read this new book of mine. And he said, you know, Ford, he said, what you really need to do, he says, you, you need to deal with Frank being about to die. You know, right up there, smack up against it. And I said, well, I, you know, I can't really do that because this is the first person narration. I said, I just, we're not going to have Sunset Boulevard here, you know. But he said, well, what you need to do, you know, I love people always telling me what I need to do, right? He said, you ought to write a novel and set it at Valentine's Day. And, and have it just, and it could be a short novel. He said, set it at Valentine's Day and have it just be about Frank right at death's door. And I don't know, that kind of appealed to me in, in a way. Because as, as, as Jessica was saying, it's, it's, if nothing, you know, the old comics law, if nothing's funny, nothing's serious. That's kind of what I believe. So if I could write a little novel, it wouldn't have to be 200,000 words. If I could write a little novel of 100,000 words that was set at Valentine's Day. I would consider doing that. I would. If I, had, if I thought it was, a, you know, you can't just write novels because you can write them. You really have to write novels because they're important and, and because they undertake to do those things that Levis said about issues that other human beings are vitally interested in. I mean, you write books for other people. You don't write books for yourself. You don't write books as, as again, for self-expression. You write it for others. So you have to think, what do I know or what can I make up that somebody could benefit from? So I'm kind of in that mode of thinking about that. But thank you for asking. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. And you yes. mentioned that you... Speaking I think, of controversial titles. Right, and that is one that um, you know, just struck me as I'd like to hear why you titled that if um, the publishers asked you to change that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I called Canada Canada for a couple of, maybe two or three reasons. One was that was the original title when I started writing what became Canada back in 1989. It stayed the title all the way through the intervening years when I was only making notes for it. So that was one reason. It had a kind of pride of place. And the, 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 the other, another reason is that I really like Canada. I love to go there. Whenever I go across the 49th parallel to anywhere along, 
I, I'm always happier. I feel like I'm entering a good place. So, mm-hmm. the, so, and, and the book, to some extent, wants to sort of posit Canada as a restorative place where you, where you can be saved. And the other reason was, and J- Jessica will appreciate this, it's a dactyl. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I loved that dactylic, that sort of dactylic rumble as it goes along. So many of the decisions that you make in writing poems and writing novels have to do with getting to see certain words on the page over and over again. And for instance, Great Falls is where I, where I set the beginning of Canada. Every time I write Great Falls on the page, I'm happy. Because you can say Great Falls as an iamb, or you can say Great Falls as a trochee. And I liked that. You know, my, my, my teachers were poets, uh, Donald Hall and Galway Cannell. They were my, Charles Wright, they were my teachers. And so I'm sensitive, to, and also being dyslexic, I'm sensitive to those kinds of things. So I called it Canada for what I thought was a whole panoply of reasons. And indeed, uh, everybody at, at, at HarperCollins just wanted to jump out the window. Because they said, nobody is interested in Canada. <laughs> you know, it's like watching paint dry, you know. But I said, no, well, uh, this is a good book. They will be interested in it when I, when I do this. And, and it's, it, worked out, it worked out okay. It worked out okay. But thank you for asking. Yes, ma'am. One last Could I, I just ask you, what impact and effect has your time in Ireland had on your writing? Well, I, I spend a lot of time in Ireland, as you, as you know, in, both in the West and, and also in Dublin because I'm Professor Trinity. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. It makes me really happy. And there's a, there's a wonderful community in the arts in, in, in Ireland, to stem to stern, all, all around. That, that's, you know, the Irish know how to have a conversation, whereas most Americans don't. And... Um, and I don't know why that would be, but the, I, I just have a good time in Ireland. But, but as regards my writing, when I'm over there, I know being the kind of mimic that I am, that, uh, that, I'm, that I mustn't write anything while I'm over there because it will, it will have this horrible faux Irish lilt to it. And you all, th- those of you who go to Ireland or who have friends who go to Ireland know that Americans typically come back from Ireland with talking in some new way. And it, and it takes a while for it to wear off. And, and I just wouldn't, tr- I, you know, h- how your sentences sound has so much to do with the ratiocinative system that goes into making those sentences. And, and I don't really feel like that my, whatever my ratiocinative impulses are, match Irish English. So, I, so I'm on my guard all the time when I'm in Ireland not to write anything. You know, the Irish do a lot of it, and they do it really well. They don't need me over there plucking up little strings and doing it. But thank you. That's a, it's nice of you. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Richard, for being here. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.